Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, and this week in Reykjavik, it has really been, um, it's been the week of Horizon Forbidden West. If you're a regular listener, you'll already know that I'm a huge fan of the Horizon series and of the original game and I've been waiting with bated breath for the sequel ever since I first played the original game two years ago. It finally came. It was one of those times when a game comes and it really just feels like Christmas, you know. Um, But it's not the only big game that came out in the last couple weeks um, because Elden Ring just came out as well. And seeing the scores, seeing what people were saying about it, seeing the graphics and... um, the open world format, I had to be a part of it. So even though I'm not a Souls player, I thought maybe this is the one. There were some reviews suggesting that it might be. So I went and got the Elden Ring as well. So I have those two games sitting on my PS5. I've played an hour of Elden Ring. I've played 67 hours of Horizon. So this week's episode is going to be my impressions of Horizon Forbidden West, one of my most anticipated games of the year. Um, I've been waiting for this one. I'm so excited that it's here. I've been playing it. I've been doing work. And then the second I finish work, I eat something and then play Horizon until I fall asleep, basically. That's how it's been. Partially, I think, because we've had a bit of a COVID spike here in Iceland. So there's no, you know, there's not a lot of uh, options for doing anything really. Um, so that's what I've been doing. It's good time for it to come along, actually. I've had nothing but time on my hands, and I've been very happy to pour all of that time into Horizon Forbidden West. I love the game. I have some critiques of it as well. Um, quite a few, actually. Um, I've got a long list of notes here. It's about three quarters praise and one quarter critique. Uh, more than I would have hoped for, but still pretty good ratio there. I've had an amazing time with this one. Um, Last week I recapped the original Horizon Zero Dawn. I replayed it in the week before the release of Horizon Forbidden West because I realized that over the two years since I had played the original, a lot of the details of the plot had just left my memory. I was struggling to remember the details of uh, Zero Dawn and of exactly why it was necessary for there to be a Project Zero Dawn in the original game. Um, So last week I decided to replay it, replayed the whole game. I'm really glad that I did because this one is a real sequel. There are a lot of recurring characters. It continues the story directly using all of the same language. And so having a working knowledge of Horizon Zero Dawn has put me in really good stead to get the most out of this game. So I'm really glad that I did that replay. It's the first time that I've done that, uh, replay a game in anticipation of a sequel. Um, my first playthrough of Horizon Zero Dawn was 87 hours, my second was 20, so I really sped through it. I just uh, beelined the story, basically. No side quests, no nothing optional. But uh, my playthrough of Horizon Forbidden West has been slow, it's been um, thorough. I mean, not completionist, but thorough. I have um, been doing a lot of side quests, a lot of optional things. I've been exploring the world. Um, And I've really had a great time with it, so that's going to be the featured game of the episode. 
Um, but before we talk about Horizon Forbidden West, I will talk about a few other games that cropped up this week for me. Um, Elden Ring was one. Um, having been suckered by the hype or just too intrigued to not play it, I bought it. I played the first hour. Um, and I was kind of like, these games scare me. You know, I'm not a hard game player. Um, I play on normal difficulty most of the time. Uh, my reactions are not razor sharp. I've been through a couple of games that I consider to be very hard, like Hollow Knight and Hyperlight Drifter, and mastered them to some degree. But it was a real struggle for me. Like Twitch responses don't come naturally to me. Uh, reading telegraphs and getting out of the way um, of a blow. They don't come naturally to me. So I've kind of struggled through hard games. So Elden Ring, I was I was worried about the difficulty, but I thought, okay, it's an open world. You can run away. You can find a spot where you're comfortable and level up and all of those things. And the atmosphere of the game looks really cool. Like the look of it is cool. The mythology around it is cool. And I was just too tempted. So I bought it, played the first hour, played the tutorial, um, which just, you know, you get a couple of shambling, very, very slow practice dummies, uh, skeletons that you get to take out. And then you get the first boss, which is just like a guard guy with a big sword, died once there and then got him and thought, okay, this isn't so bad. Um, I was rolling out of the way of his blows, you know, I was blocking. Um, I thought maybe I can do this. And then you come out of this um, training mission into a wide open world with a huge glowing tree with a, a vast Gothic castle with this pale white light um, washing the landscape, which just seems like the most cracked, barren, cursed landscape. Um, evidence of death everywhere. It's um, a very strange atmosphere. And um, it reminded me of nothing so much as Shadow of the Colossus, which I consider to be a really classic game. I've never done an episode on Shadow, but I think I will at some point. But it had the atmosphere. It had the atmosphere of the air being pregnant with meaning or mystery. The whole game has this feeling of mystery, of deep mystery and dark fantasy. A little bit like Hollow Knight, actually. You know how in Hollow Knight you just need to know the secrets of the world. It's compelling. It's quiet. It's sad and empty. And you want to know why. And you want to know more. And even though Hollow Knight was punishing, I really stuck with that game and powered through some pretty hard gameplay um, and a few rage quits. Um, but as you go into Elden Ring a little bit, I was feeling pretty empowered at this point. I thought maybe it's not as bad as all that. Maybe I have got better um, from playing as many games as I do. Maybe I've just learned the basic mechanics of games a little more and I was feeling good about things. And then I came to the first guard camp, which is at the the outskirts of the castle that you see when you emerge into the lands between. Um, and this went okay at first. I was stealthing around, creeping around, uh, backstabbed a couple guards. Um, and then someone blew a trumpet, saw me, and I was mobbed and murdered in a second. You died. Those words came up on the screen in that uh, famous from FromSoft style you died. Um, and so I tried to do the camp again. I tried to lay, learn the lay of the land, learn where all the guards were. And I died a few more times. Um, my backstabs weren't always coming off. Like you position yourself roughly behind a bad guy, kind of in line with the back of his spine, about 
half a meter away and hit R1 expecting a backstab. Um, sometimes you get one, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just slash them and they turn around and scream and other people are running at you and it's, it's all over. Um, but I kept at it for, for the next 40 minutes or so, just trying to figure out the stealth, trying to figure out the combat, trying to learn how to block, learn how to dive, learn how to stealth. Um, I didn't, didn't get there. I took out about, I think, seven of the 10 guards on one run. But I was getting pounded down pretty hard just by these very basic enemies. Um, and so I went for a little ride around. I rode up a, a, a crevasse where a giant leaps down and chases you. It's like a set piece. Um, I got my horse and uh, went up onto some high cliffs where I was murdered by a variety of monsters. Um, you can hit things when you're on horseback in Elden Ring. So I was running around trying to get this pack of wolves. Wolves are like the very basic swarm enemies. There'll be three or four of them. They just dot the landscape. It's a little pride of wolves. They're pretty easy. You hit them twice and they die. Um, so I was just practicing on the wolves. And then like an alpha wolf came out and I couldn't land a blow on it. I was riding around it in circles trying to flail my sword in its direction. It jumped up and killed me. And I just calmly closed the game and thought and said yeah okay that's Elden Ring um really punishing really hard brutal brutally difficult it just murders you at every opportunity that is the name of the game with Elden Ring not my kind of thing not my cup of tea but the atmosphere is there the aesthetic is cool um, I'm intrigued by the the critical response I want to get to the bottom of what people love about this game but it's gone firmly onto the back burner for me. Um, I remember games like this in the past where you just have to grit your teeth, settle in, and learn the game. Uh, Hollow Knight was a little bit like that. Some of the boss fights, you just have to learn the game. And it, it, there's a, a, a tilting point in these games, I think, where you're being murdered and you just can't see a way through. But then there is um, a turning point where you've internalized the rhythms of the game um, and you can get through um, a boss encounter that seemed impossible without even being hit. It's like you've become Neo in the Matrix when he realizes his truth and bullets can't hit him and he can just fly. That's how it was in Hollow Knight. They are impossible until they are easy. And it's a very strange balancing act between impossible and easy. And the only way to get there is through repetition. So that game's going to be a hard one. It's going to be a trial, but I'm glad that I got it. I'm glad to take part in this this event in the calendar, um, and I am going to give it some time down the line. I also picked up this week uh, Cloudpunk. It's a game that I've had my eye on for quite a while. It's um, a cyberpunk game uh, with a detective element to it, kind of an RPG, kind of a mystery. It looks beautiful. It looks like lo-fi in a way. It's a 3D game. You have a Blade Runner-ish city, flying cars, people to talk to, mysteries to untangle. But it had some pretty nasty um, pushback on the technical failings that it had on consoles specifically. People really like it on PC, but it crashes a lot on consoles apparently. But there is a PS5 upgrade coming for it. And so when I saw it on sale, 50% off, £10, I thought, yep, I'm just going to get that one. I'm going to download it. I'm going to wait for that patch. And I'm going to play it this year in the future. Like I did with Cyberpunk 2077. Um, I got that on sale for 20 quid. And I have the PS5 version downloaded, waiting to be played. Um, 
I also picked up, because you know Nintendo said that they're going to close the 3DS store, which came as a surprise to a lot of people. Um, well, not a surprise, really, but a lot of people were disappointed about that. I don't really mind about the, the closure of the store. Um, you know, in terms of the conversation of preservation, I feel like there must be more efficient ways to do it than keeping open storefronts that no one's using. Uh, preservation doesn't seem the same to me as uh, closing storefronts. It feels like a slightly different conversation. Um, and there has been a bit more of an advanced conversation about it, like perhaps Nintendo could relax their iron grip um, on copyrights and things like that to allow for emulation, to allow for preservation in museums, that kind of thing. Um, that seems like a good path to me, and I hope that Nintendo hear the critique and do that. But because of the closure of that store, it does seem like the price of physical 3DS games is going to go through the roof. Luckily for me, last year I bought a 3DS and 10 or so games, but there were a couple I, did, I still wanted, and so I got a copy of Bravely Default on eBay. Um, there are going to be a few more 3DS games that I try and buy, because once that digital store is gone, I feel like their value is just going to go through the roof and I don't want to be paying £70 for an old 3DS game that I want to try. So I'm going to grab them now while the price is still reasonable. Um, and I did get one review code this week, which I'm adding to the slate, and that is Tunic. Um, I know that a few of the show's patrons played this one because there was a demo available. It was also featured in a, um, I think it was a Nintendo Direct um, it's by Finji, the makers of Chicory, which was in my top five games of the year last year. Um, so Tunic is here. That's, um, that's exciting. It looks great. It looks very cute. It's a top-down, um, looks like a uh, Zelda-ish action adventure. And so I'm looking forward to playing Tunic too. Um, so that's it in terms of new games coming my way. Uh, but before we talk about Forbidden West in detail... I would like to say that this show is patron-supported, so if you would like to support the show, get extra episodes, join our Discord community, and make my day, <laughs> you can uh, become a patron over at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Thank you to all my existing patrons, and thank you to you if that's something that you're interested in doing. I did get a new patron this week, and they sent me a very nice message um, that really lifted my spirits today. Um, so thank you very much to my, my newest patron for sending me a message of appreciation for the podcast. It was very nice of you to do so. And with all of that said, let's move on and talk about the featured game of the episode, Horizon Forbidden West. So Horizon Forbidden West is a 2021 game, of course. It is by Guerrilla. It is a PlayStation exclusive on PlayStation 4 and 5. I'm playing it on a PlayStation 5. It runs very well. There is a little bit of uh, open world jank, I guess you could call it, of things just, you know, when there's so many moving pieces in, open, in an open world, it's, it's um, I've never played one that doesn't have some strangeness going on with uh, things disappearing or misbehaving. A little bit of that in Horizon Forbidden West, but really nothing out of the ordinary. A little bit of pop-in, etc. Um, it is what it is. It's open world games on consoles. Um, but for the most part, it runs very well. I've been very pleased with it. 
Um, I understand that the PS4 version also runs perfectly well. So if you do have a PS4 and there is no PS5 in your future, you're probably safe to play this one. I would say that it is a direct sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. So if you are yet to play that game, this is not the place to start with the series. Um, I would play the first game first and then move on to this one um, if you can. Um, the original game is often on sale now for not much money at all, and it is a real classic um, of the open world genre, in my opinion. And this one just moves that game on, moves the story on, the fascinating story. It ups the ante in every department, um, graphically, sonically, in terms of uh, characterization, uh, facial animation. It really picks up the baton of the old game. It starts just um, a few weeks after the events of the first game. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the story. Um, I think that that will necessitate um, some spoilers for the first game, as it is such a direct sequel. So be warned that if you haven't played Horizon Zero Dawn, I will be talking about some of the story concepts that would be characterized as reveals in the first game. Um, and so you might want to come back after you've played that first game and listened to this one. Um, but there won't be any spoilers in this one for big plot developments in Horizon Forbidden West. I may talk about some of the gameplay innovations. I will talk about some of the gameplay innovations. I will talk about some of the locations that you will come up to, uh, some of the new machines perhaps, although none of the, the big ones that are like real events in the game. I'm going to talk about the game in broad general terms. Um, I'm not going to spoil anything. If it feels like I do want to talk about those things, I will mark it as a spoiler break. So you can listen to this as a Forbidden West player and not be spoiled on anything past the opening area of the game, really. So the game picks up pretty much uh, where the last game finished, um, except all is not well. So at the end of the last game, Aloy defeated the villain of the first game, and it seemed like all would be well. Turns out at the start of this game, all is not well. There is a blight sweeping over the world. There are toxic red areas where all the plants are turning into dust. And if you walk across them, you will start to cough and lose health slowly. Um, so the world is in a state of blight. Aloy knows that this is something to do with um, the mysteries of that first game, something to do with the terraforming system uh, going wrong on Earth. And so she's struck out to try and find out um, what's going on. She has struck out to try and find a backup version of Gaia, the, the heart of the terraforming program, which was destroyed in the first game. Um, and this is what Gaia kind of suggested would happen. Gaia, when she created Aloy before her self-destruction, knew that if Aloy could stop Hades, then the next task on Aloy's plate would be to find a backup of Gaia and to reinstate Gaia. Um, and the, they use that as the premise. The premise is that the biosphere is in a state of terraforming. It's an, a work in progress. The work is not finished. And without the stabilizing influence of Gaia, the AI at the heart of the terraforming program, things are going wrong. Things are going wrong in a big way. Um, things are going backwards. All is not stable. Um, and so Aloy is frantically looking for Gaia, and that's where we find her. She's checking old facilities. She's following leads. Um, she's trying to do detective work, really. She's 
going through old data, she's trying to find places where backups of a program like Zero Dawn might have been kept. And these are large data centers in a smashed world that are now just um, empty, broken, rusted husks of buildings from a thousand years ago in the distant past, dripping basements, um, old factory-sized um, server rooms, that kind of thing. And Aloy has been doing this for a while. And when we start the game, she's going to investigate one such facility. And this this opening area, it's, um, it's corridor-like, so it's not open world yet. It's not actually in the rest of the game. You can't come back here. It's just an intro. It's a story intro. Um, and it turns out that the facility that you're going to look at is part of the space program. It's a private space company, a little bit like SpaceX. It was mentioned in the first game. And there was an effort to leave the Earth. It was said to have been unsuccessful um, in the first game. We just hear about it in memos. And here Aloy is. She comes to um, a, a launch site. You can see a giant space shuttle in the distance um, with all of the the scaffolds around it holding it up and Aloy has to get into the data center to find out if there is a backup of Gaia there um, and it introduces you to some of the basics of the game to stealth to hiding in red reads much like the first game all of the systems of the first game are in this game too many of them have been fleshed out or refined in interesting ways but if you have played Horizon Zero Dawn, you will feel right at home in this game. I would say the first thing I noticed that was different was the focus. In the first game, you click R3 to turn on the focus. This allows you to see digital information. It allows you to scan the environment. But in this game, you hold down R3 to use the focus. You tap um, R3 to do a pulse. And that allows you to be running um, and to pulse the environment and to see anything relevant around you, things that you can interact with, wildlife, um, switches, uh, things like that. Anything you can interact with will be shown if you pulse the, the focus. And this is a great addition because the focus puts you into slow motion. You can only walk and um, the camera zooms in really tightly to Aloy's eyeline, so it's not so much third person. You can just see a little bit of Aloy. You're looking in her line of sight. And so being able to pulse the environment felt really good. Um, I also right off the bat noticed that Aloy felt good to use. Her jump is higher. She runs faster. She feels a little more nimble. Um, if you come into contact with like a waist, waist height um, obstacle, like a boulder or a, a small fence or a step, Aloy will now just vault onto it or vault over it, much like... Cassandra in um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It feels like they've um, tightened up Aloy's movement. They've tightened up the focus. It feels good in this opening section to run around and be uh, Aloy. And it was great to be Aloy again and to be back in this world. I was so excited at the start of the game, honestly. I was overjoyed to be back in the Horizon world. Um, the other thing that I noticed was the look of this game. And I think that that's where I'm going to start talking about the game, um, the graphics because this is probably the best looking game I have ever seen. Um, I don't say that lightly. I'm a huge open world fan. I'm a huge fan of uh, depictions of nature. And this one just hits out of the park in a way that I've never seen before. It's, uh, it's just beautiful. The water is transparent and distorts what is beneath it, catches the light, gleams. It seems to roll over the topography. Um, underneath it, it seems like it's catching the shape of rocks on the bottom, just the way it does in real life. 
The way that the wind moves the trees is incredible. The clouds in the sky and the way that the sunlight diffuses through them uh, catches the sides of leaves and bushes that cast shadows. The way that the trees and the, the foliage are just so lush and so alive. Um, you can really feel the console generation leap here. They've done an amazing job, just as they did in Horizon Zero Dawn. It's not just the horsepower, though. Um, it's just a very beautifully designed world. The artwork is immaculate. This is an eye-poppingly beautiful game. Um, a real pleasure to look at. Just gorgeous. And that's something that continues throughout the game. As you move through different biomes, and this game has lots of them, um, you'll notice so many details in this world. The weather system is amazing. Um, there is rain, there is sandstorms, there are, there's brutal weather. Um, you'll find snowy areas, and the way that your footprints appear in the snow is great. That seems to push the snow aside in the same way as we saw in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. If you're in a sandy area, the wind will blow these arcs of sand. It seems to push the sand around on the ground. Um, if it's raining in this world, then if you go into a conversation, Aloy will have droplets of water on her face. She feels very connected to this world, and, and the world feels very alive. Um, you can swim in this game, you can go underwater, and underwater is full of life. Schools of fish, kelp, plants, rays. Um, you can feel the whole landscape moving around you. It's often like looking at a photorealistic painting of nature. Um, I took four gigabytes of photographs in my playthrough so far, and I haven't finished it, and that has not slowed down. I feel like this might be a watershed for video game visuals. Um, it's a really vibrant living landscape, and it's quite moving as such. It's just beautiful. And this extends to the character animations too. There is a lot of conversation in this game. You'll spend a lot of time talking to people. Um, the conversations run longer than before. There is a conversation wheel, you can ask questions. Lots of them are just, um, they are personal, they are non-essential story. There is one option that has an icon that will allow you to leave the conversation and to get the essential info you need to continue. But there's an awful lot of context you can ask people about their tribes, you can ask them about their family and background. There's a lot of writing in this game. And so if you're going to spend so much time in conversation, the conversation has to be good and it has to be fun. It is quite passive. You sit back and watch. And so the fact that they have zoomed out the camera a little from the first game, which had quite a tight facial crop in the conversation camera. Now you can see people's entire bodies sometimes. You can see them, their torsos, it's zoomed out. You can see them gesturing with their hands and arms. Um, so they are much more expressive. Um, it feels more like watching a real conversation or watching a real person. And that's in the camera work, that's in the motion capture. It's also in how people look. Um, I haven't seen people look better in a video game. You know how uh, when it comes in in a cutscene, the, the mouths don't quite move right, the people look a little stiff and wooden. Um, in this video game, they don't. They look real. Um, and I've been studying people's faces to try and figure out what they did differently this time. Um, 
it's in the eyes, it's in the the breathing. If you look at their eyes, the, the eyes are always moving. They're glancing a little bit from left to right in a way that, you know, if you're looking someone in the eyes, you perhaps don't notice that their eyes are moving all the time, but they are. They're not just looking uh, dead-eyed and straightforward. They are active and animated. They make gestures. They're, they pull faces. They make micro-expressions. The eyes are always moving. Um, and something about what they've done here with the, the facial animation and the capture um, and acting, uh, the script and voice acting too con contributes to this, as well as, as I was saying, like if, you're, if it's raining, then the people will have water on their faces. They feel connected to the world. They feel connected to each other. And therefore you, as the player, feel connected to them too. Um, and that does wonders for the story. Um, because you're going to spend so much time talking to people, the fact that they are engaging, in fact, almost hypnotic, like the detail that they have, they have little birthmarks, they have little freckles, they have different complexions, different pallor. Um, they really look like people and you really get a sense of personality through the voice acting um, and through the facial animation and through the setting and the camera work. It all comes together. They've really nailed that this time. Um, and it really helps. It really helps to keep your attention. And this seems like a good time to start talking about the characters. There are returning characters in this game. Um, many of them are from side quests in Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, for example, Petra. Petra's in this game. Um, Halani is in this game, I believe is her name, like your friend from the Hunting Lodge. Um, Erland is in this game, the Osaram guy. The Sun King, um, Avard, makes a brief appearance. There are lots of returning characters. Um, Val, your uh, pal from your Nora homeland who you encountered in the first game. All of these people that you had to bring together in the first game, they, they want to stick with Aloy. Um, and so they, they recur in this game. Um, and you'll spend a lot of time talking to them. They will come in and out of the story at different times. Um, but something that really works in this game, another thing that they've really improved on in this game, is the tribal storyline. If you listened to last week's uh, Horizon Zero Dawn recap, you'll remember that for me it was all about the sci-fi, and I was really not interested in the tribal storylines. I wasn't very interested in the Kaja and the Shadow Kaja and the Osaram. Um, and the Banuk. The Banuk were the most interesting, but really I wasn't in it for the tribes. I was in it for the history. I was in it for the end of the world. I was in it for the mystery of the machines and of Aloy's identity, Aloy's character journey. And they've really turned that around in this game. This time, um, the tribes come to the forefront um, because they are fascinating. Like I said about the, the facial and character animations, they've just brought out the very best in the tribal storylines. Um, so as you head west, you first encounter people called the Utaru, um, and they have such a wonderful, rich culture. They live in um, a set of satellite dishes that they've repurposed and joined with bridges and covered in woven wicker. They are farmers, they are spiritual, they're singers and worshippers. They worship the machines, they worship nature. They have some Buddhist cycle of life stuff going on. There are so many wonderful details um, they carry, each Utaru carries a seed pouch on their heart, and you can see it in their outfit. And when they die, 
um, those seeds are planted and the seeds that are in there are taken from plants that their parents um, planted. So it's a circle of life. They carry these seeds close to their heart. It's just beautiful. Um, and that's reflected in their settlement. It's so colorful. It's full of life. There are children running around everywhere. Um, there was one point where I ran past some kids hearing a story and I literally just sat Aloy down and listened to the whole story. And it was a myth. It was a myth about trying to decipher that where life begins and where it ends. It's a story about someone who went looking and then realized that it never really does begin and end. It's an ongoing cycle and journey. Little details like that, just incredible. Um, and also the Osaram are featured in this game. There is a training area in this game after you've done that first space shuttle segment um, called the Daunt. And this is the very western edge of the Kaja Kingdom. It wasn't in the first game, so it's a new area. And that's where the game really starts. It's a valley that takes about four or five hours to complete. There is an Osaram tribe there. And the Osaram village is also incredibly well fleshed out, much more so than anything we saw in the first game. There is a bar, a huge bar. There is uh, industrial um, activity. There are factories and workers' quarters. There's a lot of conversation. There's a labor, dis labor dispute going on when you get there. And the, you can believe in the Osaram. You can understand the Osaram. Um, the tribe is much more engaging. You can speak to literally everyone, and everyone has one line of dialogue for you. So there's not like the problem of Assassin's Creed when there are hundreds of people in a town, but only two that you can talk to. It just feels like you're in an amusement park rather than a world. And here in Horizon, it feels like a world. It feels like these cultures are real. It feels like they are thought out. It feels like their their beliefs, their creeds um, is, is visible in how they dress, how they speak, um, what they decide to say. They are very believable. Something that I really love is that different tribes have different aphorisms and similes. Uh, the way that they speak is wonderful. Like the Utaku will say things like, She's as stubborn as weeds, that one. Because they always talk about plants. They think about plants. They're farmers, so stubborn as weeds. It's like a saying. And they, there was another one that caught my attention where someone said, she already thinks that I'm a thorn in the thicket. And so they have these beautiful aphorisms. And it's the same with the Osaram. There's things like, they say things like, um, she's bright, that one. She's like a spark from the forge. Um, and they're always talking about in industrial industrial terms. All of their sayings come from industry and they come from hammer work and they come from um, their culture. Um, and I love that they went to the, the trouble of giving each tribe different sayings. Um, the next tribe that you'll meet is called the Tanakh. They are a warlike tribe. They are martial. They have a militaristic code. Um, they honor um, success in battle. And they, they live in an old museum in the middle of the jungle. They're split into three different clans and you'll have to deal with all three variants. Um, they are perhaps the least interesting of the bunch and yet the one that occupies the largest part of the game. Um, but there are still some compelling characters and some compelling stories in the Tanakh tribe. Um, um, they have very vivid face paint. They are fierce. They are proud. Um, and you will encounter throughout your journey people from all of these different tribes all of the time. Um, and they all have some wisdom to tell you. Nothing that they say is wasted. They are believably written. Um, so they've really done a good job with the tribes here. Um, I did all of the side quests in plain song. 
the, uh, the wonderful homeland of the otaku. Um, I did most of the side quests in the Tanax region, all of the side quests in the Osaram region, because the gameplay is fun, but also because you get story rewards. It's always like someone lost in the mountains that you have to find, someone uh, needs something to make something for which you'll get a reward. Um, but most of the time you'll, you'll, um, you'll get to extend your relationship with a character. Maybe it's a character you'll never see again. Maybe it's someone that will pop up later in the game. Um, but every, every conversation that you have and every quest that you do, every task you take on, you're learning more about the world. You're learning more about the tribes. And I found that to just be a really pleasant thing to do. I was not at all beelining the story. I was just absorbed in this world. So when you combine that, that nature, the architecture, the dress, the facial animations, the writing around those tribes, um, then you, you end up with a really compelling package, uh, very humane, very warmly written, very well put together, just a real joy. And the gameplay has had a refresh too. Um, the traversal was one of the weaker aspects of Horizon Zero Dawn. It was clunky, there was no climbing, um, you would have to jump into stuff, there's lots of invisible walls. Um, and whilst it was fine if you were on the beaten path or running through forests, as soon as it got to vertical surfaces or things that were in your way or rough terrain, it became very, very clunky, unfortunately. Still a wonderful game, still a classic, but that's a big problem with it. And they've done some stuff to address it here. There are some new traversal mechanics. There is, of course, the same as in the first game, there's a fast run, crouch, creep, sliding into stealth, uh, rope sliding down descenders, and rappelling down from great heights. But the improvements that they've made are catching ledges. So if you jump into something, and it hits Aloy at about waist height, she'll grab it and she'll jump up onto it, she'll vault onto it. Again, it's very familiar if you've played um, the, the latter-day Assassin's Creed games. There is also a shield wing. This one's pulled from Zelda. Um, it's a glider um, made out of blue light, and when you jump, you can fire up the shield wing and float down to ground from great heights. This is just brilliant. It allows you panoramic views. It allows you ease of traversal. When you get up somewhere high, you get to control your way down. It's not just that rapple animation. So that's a real good addition to the game. It's so beautiful to look at when you shield wing your way down from a great height. I've got tens of screenshots. And it works really well. It makes a really cool buzzing sound, a really cool electronic sound. There is also the pull caster. This allows, this is a, a rope with a hook on it. It's a hook shot. Um, and you can use it in several ways. You can connect to certain points in the environment. Like if there is a metal hook sticking out of the wall that's blue, then you can rope cast it and Aloy can pull down old walls. Um, you can also tug things towards you if they have this kind of blue cross pattern on them. It's a visual cue that runs through all the pull caster things so that they are uh, blue if you can pull them. Um, and you can pick up chests that are on high shelves and pull them down to you. So that's a nice little way to, to use your pull caster to get more secrets. You can also grapple with it. Um, there are certain grapple points. Um, when one is in range, a little icon will appear on the screen so you know that if you press X and then X again, Aloy will jump and then she will grapple and pull herself up. So that helps a lot. 
Um, the swimming is very well implemented also. There wasn't really swimming in the first game, um, at least not much of it, not underwater. And now you can dive underwater down into caves. Um, you don't start off with any uh, equipment for that, but it's not too much of a spoiler to say that you will get breathing apparatus at some point so you can really go down into the depths of the water. So this game's a lot more vertical. Um, it has the shield wing, it has the pull caster, um, it has the swimming, so it goes up to mountaintops and down to ocean floors, um, which just adds a lot of verticality to the world, adds a lot of depth and difference to the world. There are some negatives there. They've instituted a new climbing system. It's not good. It's bad, unfortunately, but I'm going to keep this the positive section. I'm going to run through my criticisms at the end, as I usually do, and keeping it positive uh, for now. Um, the combat is amazing. You know, the combat in Horizon Zero Dawn has always been amazing. Um, you can use your focus to scan machines. You can see their weak points that will be illuminated um, in the real world through augmented reality. Um, things that you can take off them, things that you can hit off, are highlighted yellow. So you can see that there's a fuel tank. If you can hit that fuel tank with the right kind of arrow, it will be blown off and it will reduce the effectiveness of that machine in the battle. So you can be very strategic. You can also see their elemental weaknesses. You can see if they are vulnerable to fire or water, um, and you can use that to your advantage. They have really amped that up in this game. So elemental synergies really mean more in this game. It really helps in combat to pay attention to that. Um, they've also added a system where if you push left or right whilst scanning a machine, um, you can highlight the different elements that are removable from that machine. So, for example, if you are scanning a lance horn, these very spectacular unicorn-like machines, you can see that their horn can be broken off, you can see that their uh, thigh coverings can be broken off, and their fuel tanks can be broken off. And you might need some of those elements to improve your equipment or to finish a task. And so sometimes you'll hunt down an animal with the specific intention of trying to blow the horn off of it intact um, and keep that horn. Because if you just kill the machine, certain parts just break. You can't pick certain parts off it if you haven't removed them from the machine during the battle. So there is a really strategic um, and intentional and detailed uh, granular feel to the combat and there is nothing as satisfying as blowing the armor off a robot a heavily armored robot um, diving away from it switching to plasma arrows or a plasma cannon one of the new weapons and hitting it in the weak spot and seeing its fuel tank explode and seeing the machine knocked to the floor taking that opportunity to land some uh, critical hits while it's down, and then finding cover again, laying a trap for it, letting it charge into the trap. It's just incredible. It feels so good. Um, I haven't experienced better combat in a game um, as I have in Horizon Zero Dawn. The battles feel epic. Um, the strategy is amazing. The action is amazing. Um, Aloy diving out of the way um, is amazing. There is no block, so you have to avoid. Um, and there is concentration also, which really helps. So if you dive out of the way of something, you hit the right stick, um, and then time slows down, so you can line up your shot 
Um, time also slows down if you go into the weapon wheel, so the battle doesn't stop, um, but you do have time to change your weapon um, and to make ammo on the fly, which is really helpful. It just all feels very finely tuned, you know. It's like in Forza 5, when you get like a, a beautifully tuned McLaren road car and suddenly you're just killing every race. It's just so nice. It's such a nice feeling. And combat in Horizon Zero Dawn, in Horizon Forbidden West, rather, is um, it's like that. It's like the McLaren well-tuned car just hitting the road, speeding, beautifully put together, slick combat. It's just a joy. It really is. Um, and combat isn't something that I usually go go to in games. I will do it if I have to, but I'm usually there for the story. I'm there for the experience. But the combat in this game really is part of the experience. It's just a joy. It really is. And it has been extended. There are now some new elements. There is acid, which eats the armor of machines. If you can uh, top up the acid until they blow out, um, if you can build it up rather, there is adhesive. If you build up enough adhesive, it will gum up the machine so it's slow. There is berserk arrows, which will drive machines nuts and make them attack the nearest machine. And there is also a more complex layers to that. So if you can berserk five small machines, there is another kind of berserk arrow. And if you hit a big machine with that, all of the small machines will attack the big machine, which is just incredible. It adds another layer of strategy to this already very strategic combat. Uh, they've really rebalanced the weapons too. There are lots of bow variations. The, um, the Rattler from Horizon Zero Dawn is gone. It's been replaced with a spike thrower, which is a really super powerful machine uh, cannon that throws spikes. But it's very heavy and you have to move slowly. It takes forever to reload. So there is, you know, it's balanced. You can't just use it all the time. You can't use it against a nimble foe. Or if you do, you have to be very careful. My favorite new weapon is um, a javelin and it has a drill on the end of it and if you throw it into a machine it will burrow into that machine it will break through the armor it will go into the innards and it will do damage over time and you can hear it scream you can hear the metal screaming as it goes through so if sometimes i'll come up against a big machine i'll just throw a bunch of those before um, with my concentration on in slow motion before it's really coming at me and it's got four different javelins sticking out of it all screeching away at its armor and the armor just blows off it's losing so much health then hit it with elemental and by the time it's coming for you it's already half dead it's just wonderful there is also a new skill tree it's been heavily refreshed it now has warrior trapper hunter infiltrator and machinist skill trees um, you can get different weapon abilities you can get stat boosts um, you get xp um, all the time you get skill points when you level up you get skill points from completing missions when you undertake a mission, you can see how many skill points you'll get. You can see if there is a weapon reward. You can see what you'll get. So you can choose quests based on wanting to flesh out your arsenal if you want. Um, the melee combat has also been refreshed. There is now a few new abilities. There are combos where you perhaps hit R1, R1, pause, and then hit R1, R2, and Aloy will do like a killer combo. There is something called the resonator burst, where if you hit and land enough blows, your spear will flash. You can then hit the enemy. A target will appear on them, like a, a electronic target. And if you can hit that with an arrow before it vanishes, it will explode. So there are layers that have been added to the archery, to the elemental, to the weapon selections, to the melee. 
Um, it's really, really fun. The final thing that's been added to the combat is the Valor Rush. This is like a limit break ability. So if you land enough blows in combat, you'll be able to use your special ability. Um, this The camera zooms in on Aloy's face. She puts on some uh, war paint and then she gets a temporary special ability. Um, and you can unlock these in the skill tree. There is uh, 10 or 12 different ones. Some of them will improve your archery. Um, if it's in the infiltrator skill tree, it will give you an invisibility cloak like in Metroid Dread. So you can escape if you want to play a stealth game. Some of them will, I mean, the one that I'm using at the moment just triggers a huge explosion all around you and electrocutes everything all around you. Um, and the only time that I really use the Valor Rush is when I'm in trouble. Um, otherwise, I'm just happy with my archery and melee. But um, that Valor Rush just shocks everything around you and allows you to use a healing potion or whatever you need to do, make more ammo, find cover. And so they add another strategic element to the combat. So that's just great. I mean, there are also another a number of good gameplay concessions, like small design decisions that you'd notice. For example, if there is a machine nearby, even if it's not in your line of sight yet, or if it hasn't seen you yet, like a blue electronic gleam will creep, creep into the corner of the screen. Um, and if you're closer to it, it's a little bit like if you're driving at night and you get some headlights out of the corner of your eye, you know there's other cars around you. It's this ambient light that creeps into your line of sight. Um, and that adds a lot too. It means that if you are running through the forest, you'll know when you're near machines. It's just a, a lovely, subtle visual cue that is very useful. Um, the ability to summon your mount comes very early. That's very useful. You don't have to unlock it. It really helps out the, the speed of traversal. Um, heal potions, which you have to pick from berries, which can become repetitive if you're not into that kind of thing. I like it, so it's not a big deal for me. Some people don't like to pick every berry they see. I really do. But the game tries to ameliorate the um, repetitiveness of that by, as you progress, you get an overflow. So you use your heal berries, it goes down in battle. But you have an overflow, you have some extra, so you can top it up without having to stop and pick loads of berries. Um, so, and there's also food in this game. So when you're killing animals, you're collecting parts for upgrades and stuff like that. But you're also collecting ingredients and then you can speak to cooks in small towns that will give you healing, um, food that also buffs you in battle. So there's lots of good little concessions here. Um, there is an overflow of resources if you collect too many things. Um, it's the old Skyrim and Fallout problem of constantly juggling your inventory. Now, in this game, there is an overflow. So if, you ha if you're maxed out on carrying a certain type of resource, it will go to your stash, which is a chest that you can access at every settlement in the game, to resupply. So you're constantly building up your stash of... Uh, resources. Like all of these little things, they add up. All of these little gameplay concessions and tweaks and considerations, they add up to making this a really satisfying experience. It's um, a lot of landmines that have been avoided, a lot of pitfalls that have been seen coming, a lot of problems that have been spotted in advance. And you have to have respect for that from a, a game design point of view. I mean, everything that I've said so far about story, character, nature, graphics, um, the combat being brilliant, the facial animations being brilliant, um, the writing being good. It's just start, you're starting to get a picture of how good this game is on how many fronts. And I think that this is an underrated game. It came down on Metacritic at 89, but it seems like people consider it to be in a lesser tier 
than the very top tier of games like the God of Wars and Elden Rings and the Breath of the Wilds are in some top tier of games and people seem to think of Horizon as in some way secondary but I think it belongs with those games I really do I think that this is um, an instant classic and I think that the Horizon formula has just been tweaked and refined um, and despite the flaws that I will go into and there are quite a few um, this is just for me just a, a smash hit you know they've knocked it out of the park they've done so much good work here it's just a wonderful game um, there is more new gameplay stuff too um, there are more there are new collectibles there are black boxes now. You find crashed planes, and when you find the black box, you will hear the final message from that plane, which gives you some old world context. Planes dropping out of the sky when the, uh, the Pharaoh plague was sweeping across the land. Uh, there are drones that you can find now. You'll see them, like these tiny little drones in the air, flashing light down below, and they fly in a pattern around uh, ruins and around trees. And you have to find your way up. They're like puzzles, like tall neck puzzles. You have to find your way up to the tree to the right point to jump onto the drone, to bring it down to the ground, and then to take its data, which you can then use um, as a kind of cosmetic flourish. There are also ruin relics. So in the first game, there were viewpoints where you would follow the diary of someone as they traveled across the horizon world. Um, and in this game, there's a relics. It's a different story told by someone new. But you can find these relics as you traverse the world. Each one is in a ruin of some kind, and it involves puzzles. They are now using boxes for puzzles, unfortunately. So you have to push boxes left and right in order to reach high places. You can use your pull caster to open vent covers. You have to find creative ways to climb to high places. You have to use keys and batteries. Some batteries need to be charged at a charging station. So there's lots of new gameplay in here. There's lots to keep you amused. Um, when you find a tall neck and scale it, the map will be revealed to you of the local area. Um, and that will allow you to see all of these question marks on the map that you can run towards. And you're never sure what they're going to be. It could be a ruin relic. It could be a bandit camp. It could be drones. It could be a black box. It could be a vista point. Um, it could be all kinds of things. So there's plenty of gameplay here. Um, and it's really fun just doing all of that stuff, doing side quests, doing these little activities, uh, just playing the game, not even progressing the story that much. Um, you can just have hours of fun uh, playing the game as it is. And it's really nice that way. But it's not all good in um, Horizon Forbidden West. There are some, some design decisions that I find baffling, some problems that are known problems from the first game that have not been addressed or addressed badly. Um, but I don't like to um, bang on for ages in a game this good about the things that are wrong with it. It doesn't feel constructive to me. But in the name of balance, I will run through my, my hit list here. Um, the climbing, the climbing is bad. The climbing is is terrible. Um, it's not free climbing, although it could have been. Um, Aloy can now scale cliffs, but only where there is a designated space, a designated climbable space. It doesn't look different to 
um, cliffs that you can't climb. The way that you know is that you pulse the focus and you can see uh, yellow lines and crosses appear on climbable surfaces like augmented reality information. You can choose in the settings to have that always on, which I did. So as I'm running around the world, I can see what's climbable without having to constantly pulse. Um, but it's bad. Like if you jump up, Aloy is supposedly able to jump between different yellow lines and crosses on a mountain face. It should be fluid and easy. Um, you're just using the stick really and then hitting X if you want to jump. But um, it doesn't work that way. Aloy often won't jump to the next one. If you push up, looks jumpable, isn't. So you push left and she goes down. Um, and it's just bad. It feels like a struggle. It's like you're struggling with the controls. It feels really janky. Um, I often resorted to kind of bunny hopping up um, unclimbable surfaces, uh, janking my way up hills um, in this kind of broken game kind of way. So the climbing is, is, is terrible. I would say either make it fully automated parkour like Assassin's Creed or have some kind of stamina system like Breath of the Wild or make it really simple like God of War or Horizon 1. Uh, what we have here is like the failure to make a decision really. I don't understand the vision of what this climbing is supposed to be. It's like a kind of a Frankenstein of designated ledges and catch points with the intention of giving the feeling of parkour or free climbing, but it doesn't do any of them. Um, I would say it's actually not, just not good. Um, it's great that there are more climbable surfaces, of course, so there's less time. You feel more free um, because you can climb. It's just that the climbing isn't fun. So I just don't know why they didn't do free climbing. I've, I've tweeted out a few videos of me failing to climb things because it's my pet hate in this game, honestly. Um, I would also say that there are some Metroidvania-style elements where early in the game you'll find deep caverns that you can't swim into until you get the breathing apparatus. You will find uh, vines growing over cave entrances that you need to clear, but you can't yet. Um, and it takes a long time to get that equipment. So I would say that it would have been really nice if some of that equipment was given to you earlier in the game so that you felt more empowered to explore the world um, in the opening hours rather than constantly coming to find a question mark on the map and finding it's yet another thing that you can't do yet. It can be a little disheartening um, in your early hours of exploration to constantly come up against these things. Um, I would have liked to get those things earlier. Um, there, there is a lot of um, light open world jank, I would say, and a few bugs. There is some pop-in. Um, there are some strange NPC behaviors. There are some storylines where something has happened in the world, but then you'll speak to someone who tells you that it hasn't yet or acts like it hasn't yet. There is one point, uh, one example, is that you do a long quest line early in the game with this industrialist labor leader who's a bit of a crook. And you get him evicted from the town. Um, his house is empty and the mayor is there pouring through his things. He's been, he's been cast out. He's a bad guy. Um, and I came out of the house after finishing the mission and he was sitting there with his feet up, smiling smugly like he was when I first met him. Um, I'd just been told that he'd been dragged kicking and screaming from the town. But there he was. And I could talk to him and he'd say, yep, don't mind me. Um, and it was just a bug, just pure and simple. And there was a lot of stuff like that. Um, I mean, not, not a lot, not loads, but there were characters who seemed unaware of things that had just happened to them sometimes, or uh, tangled story events. 
Um, so there's just something a little bit squiffy there, you know. Um, I would also say that sometimes the markers on the map, um, you can run to one and there's nothing there. And that might be because there is something far above you or far below you. And it might be a cave, the entrance of which is nowhere near where you are. Um, and so there is some kind of map spam, um, which can be a little discouraging. Um, I mean, I don't really like the box pushing puzzles, honestly. It's in every game ever. And Horizon was one game that didn't use crates. Um, and here they are. They've arrived. I think that it's it's a tired mechanism. And so I'm sad that they brought that in. And I would say that there is a certain uh, lack of originality in, in Horizon. All of the innovation is in the story, the writing, like the high science fiction, the hard sci-fi story, um, and the deep writing. That definitely moves on uh, game video game writing. I would say that the Horizon series does that. But in terms of gameplay, um, this is an assemblage in some ways, and it does feel like that sometimes when you're pushing crates, uh, when you're gliding down from high places, as beautiful as it is to do so. If you really scrutinize what's on offer here, um, there are elements of Assassin's Creed that have been lifted quite clearly. Um, there is the puzzle, the main puzzle mechanic from Hellblade, um, which is not that fun, where you have to overlay um, a hologram over an, a real world place that's now in here not fun um the breath of the world gliding um that's that's a great addition but it's from breath of the wild there's a little bit of stuff here from immortals phoenix rising i thought in the way that you'll come across uh, little puzzles scattered through the landscapes that are kind of insular and there are bits of god of war here too like there's lots of things that you can recognize from many games um and when you look at it all you can think like, where's the gameplay innovation in Horizon? I guess the answer to that is it's in the storytelling and it's in the combat, actually. Um, there is no other game that quite does what Horizon does in terms of taking the enemy to pieces um, in quite the same way. And the complexity and fluidity of the combat and the, uh, the intensity and detail of the storytelling. That's what it really brings. But in terms of the moment-to-moment the -moment gameplay, it can feel like a bit of a greatest hits of open-world design, you know? It's not a problem, it's just an observation. Other than that, I mean, there were a couple of moments. Um, I won't talk about story. I think it's not fair to do that here. Um, maybe when I finish the game, I will have more of a, a whole opinion about the story arc of the game. And I will do a spoiler cast at some point. Um, but there have been a few reveals. I will say that the story goes places. It doesn't rest on its laurels. Um, it keeps that, that, that widescreen sense of imagination. Um, some of the reveals in the first game um, felt really big. You know, you felt like you were really discovering this vast history with shocking uh, consequences of decisions made in the distant past. And I was wondering how they could mirror that, because we know Aloy's secret, her origin. We know the secrets of why the world is the way it is. So the big mystery is kind of gone. But they do an amazing job of introducing some kind of wild new elements that I really wasn't expecting to, to happen. Some stuff that really came out of left field. And they do keep that story going. There is more Elizabeth Sobeck. There is more Ted Farrow. Um, we discover that they they did in fact spend a lot of time in the Midwest and in the uh, the West Coast in San Francisco, 
the ultimate destination, the westernmost point of the game. Um, they spent a lot of time there because it was a, a tech area, you know. Um, so they are still in the game. They're still present. And the story goes to really good places. I'm still working my way through it. I think I'm about two-thirds of the way through the game. I've played 67 hours in nine days, which is just crazy, crazy talk. Um, but again, it's been COVID here. So, you know, what else have I got to do? I've just fully committed to this game. I'm having a great time. I think it's a wonderful and worthy sequel to one of the best open world games I've ever played. That's Horizon Forbidden West. So that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a long one. I went long. I had a lot of things to say about Horizon Forbidden West, and I really feel like I'm still just scratching the surface. I would love to tell you guys more about the story, but honestly, I just don't want to spoil it for anyone. Um, I think after the first area, um, when Aloy heads west to try and track down that, that backup of Gaia, um, everything's a spoiler, really. I, I told you about some of the cultures. Um, there are a lot of new monsters that I didn't tell you because and new machines rather, because they are uh, revelatory. Um, cauldrons are still in this game, but they've uh, reinvented them. Um, there's a lot more I could have said. Um, I'm not finished talking about this game. I'm not even finished playing it, but I do feel very passionate about this game. I think it's wonderful. Um, I hope that it doesn't get overshadowed by the hype around Elden Ring. Um, for, for all of the people bouncing off Elden Ring, I would say just play this game. It's a much more friendly game. It's a much more welcoming game. And so if you're struggling with Elden Ring or if it's not your kind of thing, then Horizon really will be. It's just a classic action adventure. I found the difficulty to be very manageable and normal. Um, it's ramping up a little bit as we're getting further into the game, but story missions, are, they're manageable. Such a good game. But that's been an hour about Horizon Forbidden West, and so I'm going to leave the rest for another day. Thank you very much for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that game. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Horizon and Elden Ring and uh, Tunic, if you're playing that one. Anything else you're playing, you can find me on Twitter at Gaming in the Wild, also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I stream sometimes on Twitch, not very often, but I do sometimes when the mood takes me. Um, I'd love to hear from you. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. That's it from me this week. I'll be back next week with another episode. Not sure exactly what I'll be talking about. Um, maybe I will have finished Horizon and I'll do that spoiler cast. Maybe I'll have a guest or talk about something else. I hope you'll join me then. Thanks again for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>